You're listening to GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers, now available on iTunes and all other podcast platforms with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. GDA Podcast showcases insightful conversations from the best thought leaders, educators, policy experts, motivators, and storytellers on the keynote speaking circuit today. Want today's guest at your next event? Call GDA Speakers at 214-420-1999 or visit gdaspeakers.com. And now, here's this episode of GDA Podcast with hosts Scale and Kyle Davis. Enjoy. Okay, with us today on GDA Podcast is the man, the myth, the legend, and this is part two because we messed up the audio, and by we, I mean me. So uh, with that being said, Kyle Maynard, welcome to GDA Podcast. How are you? Hey, thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pumped for part two. It's going to be pumped? even 10x better already, I it's can tell. Be, it's going to be 10x better. The coffee is kicking in. <laughs> had to give that time to yeah, uh, you, seep in the system. It's a recipe for a good, uh, good podcast, good speed, all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of all the other podcasters who, who suck down the Joe, so <laughs> why not? So <laughs> um, we were just talking about, and, and, and this is for the listeners who, who don't know who you are, but you were born um, a quad amputee who's just lived an amazing life. And for anybody who's met you, they see past that. They, they don't they don't see you as anything other than just an awesome person. But for people who have no earthly idea who you are, who, like I said, like I said, in, in part one, who are just oblivious because they're not on social media, they, they don't watch the Olympics and, and you know, they, they don't read books or, or they haven't heard of Oprah. Uh, let them know who you are. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because it's, um, you know, there's, there's an idea that I think about a lot, before I jump into this to get a little geeky for a second, but it's called the map is not the territory, right? So I think about this all the time. But the idea is I think when people look at me and they see basically to give people a visual, you know, it's the, my arms and the elbows, my legs and the knees. So it's a very physically, visually obvious disability, right? And, you know, that, um, you know, we all walk around with our own mental maps and sort of project out what, what somebody else is and somebody else, you know, they, they might not necessarily realize, right, the territory, which is whatever reality is, then for me, you know, as I grew up, had awesome parents, taught me I could do anything, grew up as a wrestler, football player, um, then fought in MMA, you know, got to break world records in weightlifting, started businesses, and now get to, you know, travel around the world as a speaker and also, um, you know, getting to climb some of the highest peaks in the world. So I think when people see me for the first time, they don't automatically think like, oh, yeah, clearly that guy's like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, they're thinking like he would have trouble maybe getting in and out of the chair, which in a lot of ways is a bigger thing. I try to go and, um, you know, just realize that none of us have like the accurate map of the world, right? We all have the different ways that we go and see the world, but it's not actually the world. It's just the way that we see it. And frankly, that too is, is a muscle, just like the muscle that you would work out and go into the gym. I think it's, you know, learning to go and control those perceptions and to see a bigger picture, see more capability in our own lives and not the limitations, I think is, is a muscle too. What was it like on your end and, and you, you touched on this, but what was it on your end that allowed you to look past, you know, what are, um, visually obvious uh differences between you and a a, quote normal or typical person what was it like kind of growing up and i know you we mentioned this in the in the part one which will be in (laughs) which will be in the vault and and no one will be able to totally we should just hold that part one and just tease that for for years thank you know it's i mean no one's ever going to know what happened in part one, but no one, will, no one will ever know. And then we should like sell it to <laughs> sell it to the highest bidder, like uh, like the Wu, like the Wu Tang Clan. Um, you, you know, growing up, you 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 wrestled and, and you played football, and uh, your your dad really kind of pushed you to do that. So I'm just curious as to you know what was it that let you know you know what the uh, what the territory and what your map was like. Yeah, you know, it was a kid. I just wanted to be a typical kid. I wanted to, um, play with other kids and, 
you know, just have normal friendships and all that stuff. And, you know, they just have a normal life. And really my mom and dad, their attitude was as difficult as it was to go and treat me as, as normal as possible. And that I would see myself the same way. I think that they kind of intuitively knew that if they saw me as disabled, quote unquote, or made that too big of a deal, then I would kind of I would see myself that same way too. So, you know, I like, I wish there was some like bigger answer that like I, you know, had some great discovery or something like that. Honestly, frankly, it was just, I wanted to be a normal kid. And, um, I think that for sure, you know, there was, um, you know, an element of maybe realizing that kind of that internal determination and drive was going to be the bigger differentiator for me. And, you know, I think kind of deep down, I knew that was the case. I remember like the first moment of having a, like a taste of that was, um, my grandmother um, had this incredibly, like, f- frustratingly difficult uh, sugar jar that she had, where it was basically this, like, s- this green sugar jar that was sitting on top of her counter. And I could only fit one of my arms inside. I was maybe three or four years old, and she would ask me to go and scoop out the sugar inside here. Mm-hmm. I really couldn't fit both of my arms inside, you know, to come to a point and grab the sugar scooper and I would just have to precariously balance the sugar scooper on one arm to go and pull this stupid thing out. But then, you know, I got to pull the sugar out and spill it all over the counter. And then of course, as a three or four year old, that was the greatest thing ever. So it was like instantly hooked to that idea of, you know, even though I have to fail hundreds or thousands of times to scoop this thing out, then it felt so good when I finally did. And, you know, I don't think that that's dissimilar from a lot of things that we experience in life, you know, that we go through. That's like, it sucks at first. And then kind of, it's almost that ratio of like how badly it sucks at first that like how good the payoff is going to be at the end. Mm -hmm. There's a phrase that I like, uh, embrace the suck. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I love that. I think your boy, John's very, very Jocko. (laughs) Exactly. Sounds like, (laughs) sounds like Jocko. Sounds like Jocko and all the boys of his Jocko for friends. I don't know is like, um, like a six foot six, 280 pound Navy SEAL jiu-jitsu black belt. Who's one of the nicest people I've ever met until he's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's uh look him up. Jocko Wilnick, his pocket. We'll, we'll give him credit. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll tweet at him and we'll get him to publish this for us. Totally. <laughs> uh, you know, growing up, you, your dad had you wrestling and, in 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 the teaser uh yet to be unreleased uh version one of this podcast you mentioned that your dad (laughs) um really you know pushed you and encouraged you to to continue wrestling and then that was like the first sport that you had uh started and you know the beginnings uh, the beginning probably was tough and i want you to talk about that but at the end uh, something brilliantly crazy came out of it yeah so you know, early go in the early goings of wrestling, I just come from playing football and there had actually been a decent amount of media coverage with that. I was 11 years old and got to do a live interview on CNN. And, um, the short story is with that, like I, I would play nose guard defensive line. I would take my helmet and smash it into people's legs as hard as I could, which kind of explains some of the brain injury stuff maybe nowadays going on with me. But, <laughs> um, it basically with wrestling, you know, so I lost the first 35 matches I competed in and lost every single match for the first, the first year. Um, and we revised the goal from like the goal went from being able to win a match at first. My dad realized that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. So the goal became just not to be pinned. And I spent a lot of that year with one shoulder pressed down on the mat fighting not to be pinned and, um, managed to make it through the year though, not getting pinned. And then, um, the next year, my dad convinced me to sign up again, and he tricked me into signing up, basically told me that everybody loses their first year in wrestling. It's you know not uncommon that you won't win a match your first year in wrestling, and basically said that everybody wins a match their second year because you're just going to beat somebody who it's their first year now. So um, that belief became embedded in me, and then I found that first kid that I beat, and you know it's sort of an element of confirmation bias, right? We look for the things that we believe, and I found this first kid that I beat, and I was like, heard that he's a first year wrestler and instantly I was like, boom, like that's my kid. And, you know, I'm looking for all, all the evidence as to why that's the case. He's kind of scrawny. He's kind of warming up the, you know, wrong way or whatever. He was, you know, I was like, oh man, like I just had this kid beat mentally before I ever stepped out on the mat. We shook hands. I'm like, he's got a weak handshake. And then all of a sudden I took him down and landed on top of him. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. 
and ended up beating this kid by a mercy rule. So it's like a tech fall. It's, uh, you know, just took him down enough times where they stopped the match due to a mercy rule. And then all of a sudden I kept winning a bunch after that realized it was just way more of a mental thing than anything else. And, um, then all the time, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was wrestling varsity for one of the top teams in the Southeast. And, um, it was, um, it was an amazing experience and, you know, I beat a lot of state champions and state placers, um, many state placers in uh, my home state of Georgia beat the state champion of Alabama, the state champion in Louisiana to overtime with the state champ in Tennessee. Um, you know, and ended up placing top 12 at the, the nationals in my weight class. And at that point it became an interesting debate and discussion. Um, the media sort of came back around again and, and, um, got to do an interview on HBO real sports, but the, the sort of, it wasn't the central theme or topic, but really one of the questions at that point was whether or not I was unfairly advantaged over all the other kids without the pesky arm and leg weight. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you look at, uh, well, I guess the, another salient example of this would be Oscar Pistorius. Uh, we'll, we'll leave his personal life out of it, but, <laughs> right. um, you, you know, you look at somebody who uh, kind of similar situation, if I remember correctly, I mean, he was born without, was it one leg or two legs or something like that? I think. Bleed missing bowl. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, blade runner was the name and, and everybody's looking at the tech and his legs and saying, well, you know, he has an unfair advantage and it blows my mind because I mean, I'm looking at it going, well, yeah, he has this cool like launch pad slingshot thing, but his running form is not the same as everybody else. So he's, he's adapting to the environment. He's adapting to the situation and he's just as fast. And I mean, he's not going to beat, you know, Usain Bolt or anybody, but right. He's crushing it. Yeah, no, there's a, you know, it's an interesting debate too. And I actually see too that, you know, I see both sides of it. I try to look at, I want to look at things as pragmatically as possible. Right. And I think that, um, you know, there's, there's going to come a time and then, and it's already sort of here, but in the not too distant future where many biological implants are actually significantly better than whatever you would have had genetically that you were born with. Right. That in the, I'm, you know, it's not going to be too long not to go like too futurist or whatever, but like, you know, before, you could have, um, you know, your eyes or like a portion of your eye transplanted and have, you know, binocular vision and, you know, um, you know, have some sort of like, you know, Google glasses as an implant or something like that. Right. Like it's the, the world that we're living into is going to be very interesting in that regard. And I think that, you know, in the world of prosthetics, it's it's also um, an interesting one. I, I also, too, I totally see the valid point that people said of, you know, when I was competing in wrestling or jiu-jitsu take jiu-jitsu for instance last you know i fought two years in a row in the jiu-jitsu world championships and um you know made it to the quarterfinals lost in a um, referee decision in the quarterfinals and um but you know a lot of people said like okay kyle can't be arm barred typically and that's true you know it's i've only been arm barred by one guy in my life and that was forrest griffin who's more of a gorilla than he is a human and it's the um you know, so it's like there, there's definitely like there is an advantage there. I, I also too think that there's the difference between a mechanical advantage and one that's sort of like a cultivated physical advantage. For me, you know, I tell people that they weren't really around to see those first 35 matches and how abysmal I was. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages other people use to kind of exploit, right? Like um, I do lack the reach. So if someone wants to go in when I fought in MMA, you know, it was a lot easier for my opponent to keep me at the end of his jab than say someone that was, you know, had the armor leg link that could close the distance and, you know, and clinch to then work for a take down. So I don't know. You try to, try to let's look at things on both sides. And I think that there, you can make an argument both ways. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I have some friends that I went to school with, um, you know, I went to one of those like smart kid schools, uh, apparently. And, uh, one of my really, really one of those? yeah, they, I know crazy, I, a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, the, the, there's a larger population of students there on like the autism spectrum, for instance, right? Like than there is, uh, in like normal society. And, uh, it's interesting to see how, 
the, the parallels, whether it be mental or physical, um, the adaptation process and those who can adapt and, and utilize what is a perceived um, deficiency or, or handicap, if we're going to use that word, uh, to to really exploit it and make it something that's exponentially better than you know what other quote normal people have. Totally, you know it's it's fascinating that you bring that up too because it's you know you look at something that would be like an automatically perceived disadvantage and that there are certain huge you know disadvantages that are associated with you know something like autism, certain challenges or, or what have you, right? I don't really get hung up on the words disability, whatever, whatever like the word is that somebody wants to go and call it. But, you know, it's, there's also like the other, the flip side of it is there are huge advantages to that. And, you know, it's a whole scale and spectrum, right? Like, um, you know, a lot of psychologists put ADD on, on that scale, you know, and um, frankly, I would definitely classify myself as that, you know, I, but it, I see it as like my secret superpower. It's where all the creative creativity comes from. It's where all the sort of nonlinear thinking and thinking about like, you know, just different ways to do things and approach things and problem solve and, and all of that. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, but that's really for anybody at any point in time. I'll give you, for instance, like, um, uh, you know, probably like one of the main groups that I get to speak for is like, uh, the like financial services world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got two different types of financial advisors, right? When the market's going to go south. You've got the like financial advisor, and I think this is the typical sort of norm, maybe 90% or more, that you know the market tanks, and it's like the picking little like, oh man, the sky is falling, like the world's never going to be the same, blah, 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 all this stuff, and they kind of get caught up in that victim mentality without remembering the fact that everybody is going through the same thing right now, and yes, your clients are pissed off at you you know, for reasons that are outside of your control. But right now there's more money in motion in, you know, at like the bottom of the market in 2008 than there ever was in human history. So the smart financial advisors there would be able to go and seek those high value clients that, you know, um, you know, and could triple or quadruple their business by the time the market comes back in a couple of years, because they were focused on like, this is my advantage. This is a time to be able to grow, not focused on like the, sort of like more victim mentality. I think it's, you know, <clears throat> there's that saying, right? That like, um, you know, the, the rich get richer in those moments because I think it's those, like, it's just a mindset thing where it's like something goes wrong. Now, how can I like look for and see the advantage inside of this? I think that's a, an interesting point that you bring up. And especially when you're talking about like the audiences of, uh, you know, the people that you speak to and, and, and what you're, you're trying to convey. I mean, you, you know, you have the the fight or flight kind of, uh, you know, fear responses that are just ingrained in all of us. And unless you've been through the crucible before, more often than not, you're you're, you're gonna try to try to run away from something that's rather challenging versus you know finding the opportunity and fighting through it. Totally, and, and that's a natural response, right? So one of my best friends, um, my best friend, like Jeff, like. Um, like one of my like two two closest friends, like in business partner now. Um, you know, speaking of ADD, we're starting a Brazilian swimwear company together. <laughs> you know, so we've got banana um, hammocks that going on too. He's he's getting out of the navy um, coming up in, in just a couple of months, and but through him, I've gotten to be very close to like that. You know, like the Navy SEAL community, which has been amazing. I think it's kind of a very fascinating like group of people that have you know sort of being able to study the mindset of, you know, just like resilience and overcoming. And, you know, they're arguably the most elite special forces group in in the world. And and that takes a special mindset. You know, as a crazy side note statistic, it it actually, I don't don't know if people would realize this, but, um, you know, you look at the special forces community, like there are more army special forces, like they used to be called Green Berets, but now just sort of the special forces community. There are more active duty army special forces today than there have ever been Navy SEALs since like pre Vietnam. Uh So, you know, it's a really small group of people that have made a profound difference on history. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool SEAL sort of like, you know, quotes and wisdoms, you know, and things like that. But one of my favorites that Jeff was taught was by one of his original mentors and this guy, Master Chief Guild. And Master Chief Guild said, um, you are not your first thought, right? So it's like you have that monkey mind inside, you know, and it's the monkey mind meaning sort of like your brain's just going to go all over the place and like 
you know, like if you're doing something that's really hard, say I'm climbing a mountain and like, frankly, you know, like 90 to 95% of the time when I'm climbing a mountain, I'm bear crawling down in the dirt. I've got some custom adapted shoes, but literally started climbing with like bath towels wrapped around my arms and my feet duct taped on. And I'm staring at the rock, staring at the dirt, staring at the ice, whatever terrain I'm on and become very familiar with that. It's not the most breathtaking view in the world. And I'm thinking in my head a lot of the time, like, man, this sucks. Like, what am I doing here? And you know, I think it's, it's not dissimilar from a lot of people that have that sort of mindset of like, you know, just like what, um, you know, like if you're doing something that's difficult, you're doing something that's challenging, like you, you want to go and quit and you want to give up, but you are not that first thought. So you are way more your second thought, the third thought, the fourth thought, like you are the thoughts about that thought. So you might have that impulsive thought that's like, whoa, that's a crazy thought. Like, no, I'm not going to go and quit. Like, you know, it's just like you it's like then that thought about the thought, I think, is a trainable, learnable skill. And, you know, it's and that kind of fits in that no excuses kind of vein, because it's like at that point, like we aren't we can't control that first thought. It's an imp impulse and it's never going to be able to be controlled. But, you know, developing that mental lasso, so to speak, um, you know, stole that from my buddy Mario. Um, but like, it's, you know, it's like literally like the thought goes out there and you got to like throw that lasso out to go and like grab hold of it and rail it back in. I think it's a big part of, of what allows someone to be more mindful, to be more resourceful in those, those more challenging moments. When you're talking about this, this mindful and intention, uh, filled way of, of navigating life, you know, the, the, you know, being reactionary versus contemplative, you know, the, the, the default is, is just react and, and, and go. And, and sometimes it's, maybe that's the best decision, but more often than not, you know, having the ability to contemplate on things and to really, you know, think things through, um, can yield, uh, better results. So I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, while you're bear climbing, you know, up a mountain and, and you don't, you know, really have the opportunity to take in the views because you're just focused on, you know, putting, uh, the next foot forward, so to speak. Is it for you better when you come up and say, you know, this is everything that I've accomplished because I was grinding it versus, you know, taking that breath and stopping and just looking around. It's an interesting thought and question. I guess I, the, the short answer is I don't really know because I don't really have the other perspective. But, um, you know, I think about that sometimes. And, you know, in, it's it's not like, you know, I, I'm not a complete, like, just total, like, masochist that, like, I can only do things that, are terrible. I mean, I definitely enjoy. Come on, we're, we're trying to build this myth. We're trying here. to build this myth up, man. We're trying to build the myth. Up. Oh, totally. Okay, yeah, totally. I only do things that are super painful and not fine <laughs> at all. Uh, never have binged on Netflix or anything like that. No. But the um, no, so it's like you know, it, like a. I think an, an easier example, maybe that people could go and relate to, would be you know, any type of like physical exertion or activity. It's like if you go into the gym and you have a day where you're like, oh, I'm going to do like a set of this and and like spend five minutes on my phone and then like I'm going to do a set of that and like five minutes on my phone and then like, you know, maybe I'll do one more thing and I'm going to do a couple crunches and then I leave. Mm -hmm. It's like, all right, you went to the gym, but was it really like going to the gym? Was it really like that satisfying? Or if like you go there and you have that intention and you, you work hard and you push yourself and you sweat and you physically exert yourself and you, you know, minimize like the time texting in between sets, then at that point, you know, like what's going to be more fulfilling when you walk out of it? Like in that moment, it's definitely a lot easier to just walk into the gym and, and kind of, you know, take five, 10 minutes in between sets and talk to people and blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, it, it's when you leave, I think that like, at that point, you can walk out of the gym knowing that like you went in and you, you, you busted it, right? It's one of the the stories that comes to mind for me was like the first thing I ever climbed was a little 900-foot peak called Stone Mountain in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and we Stone Mountain, um, it's like it's so random. 
but it's like this large protruding granite face and it's the largest like continuous granite piece in the world to get a little geeky on the geology. Um, but Stone Mountain, there's this tram that would go into the top. And so growing up in Atlanta, we used to do that all the time. And we'd take the tram to the top, you'd get, get off the tram and we'd take a photo and we'd look at Atlanta and say like, oh, it's you know so pretty. And then, you know, you get off the tram and then six months later when a new group of relatives or friends would come into town, then we'd go there, we'd go to the top of Stone Mountain, we'd take a picture and then go back. So I'd been to the top of Stone Mountain maybe a dozen, uh, Baker's dozen times. And I really, it wasn't my favorite place to go because I was just like kind of over it. Like it just kind of, you stand in line, you go take this tram and see the same view and then you leave. And um, then the opportunity came up to do a CrossFit competition in 2010. And I signed up 24 hours before I decided to try to, the first workout and event they announced was um, you have to do a thousand meter row on a rowing machine and then sprint up Stone Mountain and do the hiking trail. So everybody else did the sprint and maybe... 25 or so 30 minutes and it took me an hour and 47 minutes i tore all the skin off of the ends of my arms use these leather welding sleeves to try to protect my skin realized that was a bad idea because the leather was a decent amount tougher than my skin and um got to the top and after that you know it was just breathtakingly beautiful it was i mean at that moment maybe like one of like the if like i took an hour and 47 minute block of time in my life it was the worst physical exertion that I've ever experienced, but I got to the top of the mountain that night and I looked and I saw a completely different view of Atlanta that I'd ever seen before. And I think it was only because of that exertion. Um, you know, it's, I came home that night and told my friend I wanted to do Mount Kilimanjaro and she said, you're freaking crazy. How are you going to do that? And I said, I don't know, comma, but I want to, and we're going to figure it out. So, you know, it's, it's also too, like, kind of not knowing the, where the limits lie, I think is, is really a big, a big thing that I think about all the time is, you know, how do we actually really figure out where those limits exist as opposed to just like the theoretical. Mm-hmm. Should we hit him with the Jockoism? Oh man, let's, let's bring it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm not going to fake the Jocko voice. You know, do it. I, I can't do it. But uh, <laughs> you were just mentioning his, his, his go-to, which is discipline equals freedom. Yep. So true. It's so true. He, um, and it's, you know, it's so true. Right. I mean, like, and I, I don't have the same level of discipline that Jocko does. I mean, he, the guy wakes up at four 30 in the morning and he's posting, you know, four 30 AM workout posts. And it's like, it's insane. It's, it's awesome. But yet discipline equals freedom. It's so true though. You know, it's like you have many more choices. I think once you, you know, once you cultivate that. So you're you're we, we've talked about the brazilian jiu-jitsu and 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 wrestling and and you've, we've talked about climbing and and you know everything and from there you, you know you do you do your first mountain um uh, if you want to call um this giant granite slab in atlanta mountain uh right. so you do that and then you want to start going to climb other stuff. And you said the next adventure is going to be Mount Kilimanjaro. I know that, um, you know, I just know that that's tough. I mean, I've never done it. I have some friends who've, who've climbed it. So I'm just curious as to what the preparation was. And, and I know that you have some, you know, special equipment that you climb with as well. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was a fascinating process. Cause first of all, kind of had to find somebody that was crazy enough to take us. Um, thankfully my buddy, Dan, who's, like equally probably way more like delusional in terms of like goal setting than I am. Um, you know, I love like Dan. It's like just, he was an undersized, like five, nine, five, ten middle linebacker that ended up setting like the NCAA, like college, like unassisted tackle record in a game, like 21 unassisted tackles in a game or something like crazy like that. Mm-hmm. But Dan and I like partnered together and he, he was like, dude, we're going to do this. We're going to find a way to go. And um, we went and sought out um, kind of a friend and mentor, Eric Weinmeyer who's um, the only blind climber to ever ascend Everest and climb all seven summits, um, you know, the highest peak on each continent. Eric actually just, it's like, kayaked, like, solo kayaked the length of the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon, which is freaking mind-blowing and blind. Um, and anyway, so we sought out Eric and went to um, something called the No Barriers Summit. And um, it's an amazing sort of event for people with disabilities and, you know, just experience the outdoors. And it was really a jumping off point, Eric introduced us to our guide, Kevin. And, um, 
you know, that's really where things started to come together. Kevin is a um, mountaineer and has led, he was a base camp manager for Eric. He led a group of blind climbers to the summit of Kilimanjaro. He's probably summited like a thousand times himself or something crazy. I mean, he's maybe by a thousand, I mean like 40, but a lot. And he, I think he's led more climbers to the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro than any American guide. And, and um, so Kevin Chirilla is his name that um, we partnered with them and their nonprofit, which is um, I'm now a board member of to, to drop that name, drop that. But it's the K2 Adventure Foundation. And we help kids around the world with um, to um, experience the outdoors, experience a normal life, help them with adaptive equipment. There's an orphanage that we sponsor at the base of Kilimanjaro um, for kids with disabilities. But it was really meeting that group that then things became possible. Um, they introduced us to people that made my gear, went from the bath towels, you know, and the, the leather welding sleeves to this carbon fiber shoe system, a- assembling the team, you know, and, and getting people on board that believed in it and were willing to be, you know, patient enough and, you know, qualified. It was absolutely everything. It kind of fits in, you know, we haven't really talked about, about much like, you know, the business side of things, but um, you know, I kind of feel the same way inside of business, right? It's entirely like the, the team around you, you know, we talked about the Navy SEAL thing a couple times, but like, that's also, you know, it's all, they call it the teams. It's literally like the teams, nobody does anything alone in isolation. Like we're so much, you know, stronger together. And so that's, was just by far like the first most important crucial step of getting there was, was getting that team assembled. In talking about kind of getting a team assembled and, and switching to the business side, you know, one of the things that um, is, is a thread that kind of carries through the, the podcast that we've recorded, especially in talking to you know, other you know, business leaders and thought leaders and, and, and the like, is that, um, you know, putting together the right team, putting together the right culture, having a hundred percent buy in. And and in future selling, all, all those things are, are incredibly important. Um, I'm curious as to, you know, what happens when you put together a team. What are you um, looking for, and then you know, what are you advising people, and what are you talking about when you when you give your talks um, to leaders? You know, I think I've definitely like I've got. Um, you know, it's a lot to learn. I, I think it's, you know, for sure, like the area that I'm, I'm most intrigued about, you know, learning is, is how to, to best, you know, develop that team. But I think it's, you know, th- like, um, I think one thing that happens kind of organically when you get the right people in the right place, though, is that in one of my favorite quotes was uh, Henry Ford said, 90% of all management is hiring, right? So it's, it's really like when you get the right person in the right place, but like I take that to mean that, um, you know, um, whether it's hiring, training and development, however it is investing in taking the time to get the right person in the right place is, is absolutely critical because we all have our own strengths and, um, you know, in, in business, um, I have kind of my, my right hand guys. Um, I have my friend Brandon who runs my CrossFit gym. I opened a CrossFit gym in, um, 2008. It was right as the market tanked and assigned the lease for that. All my friends were like, ah, oh, you're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. And um, now we've got a 12,000 square foot building and the gym is more profitable than it was than when I was there running it on a day to day. And I realized I was definitely the biggest limiting factor to it. So all I had to do is leave and move to San Diego. And now it's doing awesome. But it's primarily because of the team there. You know, it's because Brandon has just done a phenomenal job of, of managing it, organizing the culture. And um, it's like such a huge thing. And it's such a, a difficult thing to to get a grip around is, is that idea of culture. But I think that there's like a, a contagious element of culture, right? And it, it does, you know, sort of like percolate and trickle from, you know, from like leadership and in leadership at all, at all levels, right? That I think for one, getting people to go and take personal responsibility for the fact that like everybody is is going to be able to you know contribute to this and really determining like where do people see that those like lines of responsibility, right? Like um, where you know like how invested are they in in the success or growth of the organization? How excited are they to to, to show up? Um, and 
you know, and it's going to show up inside of inside of their actions. And you only truly, I think, know someone's character. I think when when somebody when you get tested, it's it's it, you don't see that true character when when things are going good, when they're easy, when they're fine. And, you know, you, you find that true character when like things people are really brought to their knees and dealt with, you know, an extreme challenge. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I know we've got kind of a, a mutual friend in, in Nando Parado and, you know, like the ultimate survival story in the world. And Nando, you know, crashed in the Andes mountains and, you know, it was the, the rugby team that then, you know, survived in the Andes for 60 days and then hiked out and um, Nando and another gentleman, you know, hiked out for like uh, 12 days after that. I mean, it's the most amazing story, but like, we just don't know what we have inside of us until we, we are tested and, you know, have to like to deal with something. And that's, so that's, that's where I guess I would start is like, you know, kind of in an interview process, like looking at like, okay, what kind of like level of responsibility does somebody take for, for their life and, you know, their level of investment in this, but also beyond that, like what's going to happen when, you know, when they are pushed and they are tested and how somebody can react and respond then. And it's the primary reason I think that like the speaking business in general exists is because it's like an element to like introduce and interject different ideas and different spirits and different themes and into cultures inside of companies. And, um, Abraham, and Lincoln said, if I've got seven hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend the first four sharpening my axe. I think that that's, you know, what this is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think I think the the great benefit to the speaking industry and, and being able to have somebody who is an outsider, um, who has different views, different history, different ideas, different concepts, and bringing them in allows you – uh, as an organization or as an individual to to change the way you're thinking, whether you agree or disagree, and you can test it. And then to to expand on kind of the, the, the trial by fire, the crucible, if you will, I mean, you don't know how something is going to um, work until it is tested. I mean, that's why cars go through so much stress testing before they ever hit the road. Um, you know, it's it just, it's, it's an important element to, uh, to everything else. So why shouldn't it be a, an important element to, um, to a business or to culture? Totally. It's just, it's not, you know, the thing that kind of frustrates me is, you know, I guess like at a bigger kind of macro scale is like, we just don't really teach this stuff in schools either, you know, of like how to use your mind, how to, you know, when like our thoughts are like racing and, you know, it feels out of control. How do we go and like bring that back down to like a more, you know, manageable level. Right. And, um, that I think a lot of that uh, training technology exists. It exists in different forms, different fashions, but it's really just engaging with something I think that, um, you know, allows us to like look a little bit deeper. And sometimes when we're, you know, if we don't take that time to sit down and sharpen the ax, then, you know, we're just going to spend the full seven hours chopping down the tree with the blunt ax. Mm-hmm. not going to be nearly as efficient as we could otherwise. And it's like just investing that first four hours in sharpening the ax, you know, it, it might seem like a poor return on investment for that first tree, but by tree number 10, you're going to be grateful that you did. So it's that that's, you know, I, I think about that in my own personal growth and development all the time is I, I, I try to look for areas in my life where I feel like my personal choices are constrained and, if there's a constraint in those choices, then that means that effectively there's, you know, I can look at it as a potential area for, for like, you know, for growth and, um, not saying that I want to go and be open to, to all the different possibilities that might exist with something, but I can like, I can look at that as a possibility to go and look at and see, you know, why is it that I'm constrained in the way that I feel about this? And as you know, literally having a conversation, um, you know, with my girlfriend this morning about, about that, like, you know, certain areas in my business where I currently have kind of felt constrained. And it's like, I want to go and get to the root of it and see, you know, what is it that's really going on there? And I feel like that is an element of sort of sharpening the ax and then having the tools to then be able to do something about it. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm now thinking of, and I want to bring it back to, um, especially when you were talking about the wrestling and how your first season out, you, you 
you lost or you failed 35 times. And I think what's a, what's a big trend in, in my background in the startup world and everything else is, is learning to fail and failing fast and then learning from your failures so that you can improve upon something. And I think, um, you know, kind of what you were just hinting at, uh, there was when you're figuring out what's constraining you or, or, or what you've done and, in your failures is how do you learn from that? How do you bounce back and how do you pivot it into, into something else? Yeah, I think a huge part of failure has a lot to do with the expectation. So sometimes, you know, if we have that expectation that we should be good at something right away, then frankly, it's just a crappy expectation that we need to go and reexamine and and do away with. And, um, you know, so I almost like, I think through the different failures in my life, like I've learned, now to expect to be really bad at something when I first start, which allows me the patience to be able to then like figure it out. And I'm not saying I've got that like mastered by any means. I mean, it's, you know, there's a long way to go, but like a lot of my life has kind of had to been forced to deal with that. Right. Like the wrestling example of losing the first 35 matches in a row is one of the bigger ones for sure. Cause you know, I felt like getting my butt kicked by other guys but in a general life sense being born as a quad amputee you know being feeling very different sort of separated from other kids at times not all the time but definitely elements of it you know there are nights where i would cry myself to sleep and like wish and dream and pray that i'd wake up and just have arms and legs Mm -hmm. now like there's nothing in the world that you could give me that would make me go back and live life in a different way in that sense i think it's the greatest gift i've ever been given you know in wrestling obviously it turned out to be a lot better you know ended up you know one of the top wrestlers in my weight class in the nation um you know but even an example of like putting on my socks you know first my mom and dad would encourage me to go and do most things on my own but there were some things that was just easier for them to help with so you know putting on a pair of socks took 45 minutes the first time i did it and i used a paper clip that i reshaped in my mouth to go and form a fishing hook and you know use that to put on my socks for the first time thankfully it doesn't take me 45 minutes to put on my socks anymore now it takes maybe 20, 30 seconds. But, you know, I don't have to use a paperclip anymore and just use my arms to go and pull a sock on. But, you know, it's that initial period that I knew would be really tough. So, you know, fast forward to present day, um, you know, I think we got into this a little bit in like part one to kind of continue <laughs> teasing that. But the, um, it was uh, like, people have asked me, okay, what's the next mountain you're climbing? And I tell them photography or videography because I, you know, I'm, I want to just, I have an interest in doing that. I think that the world's moving in this digital direction and those, you know, photography and videography provide many different ways to go and share that my story or other things more artistically in that regard. Um, that being said, I know that, you know, I've had to take a lot of like photos and videos over the last eight to 10 weeks that, I'm not going to do anything with because frankly, they were just really bad photos and videos. Mm-hmm. And, but now I, like the stuff that I've gotten to produce and shoot over the last even week has been exponentially better than, than the stuff that I shot 10 weeks ago. So it's, but the difference is I think when I started there, I, I, I guess I set that expectation that, you know, for those first couple of weeks, months of doing it, I was going to be really bad and I was going to have to go and like shoot a bunch of stuff that would be unusable. And, you know, now I, I feel pretty good about like the direction that I'm going and the stuff that I'm going to be able to put out in the next couple of weeks. So it's, it just, you know, I think that that process, no matter what industry we're in, you know, no matter what hobbies we have, no matter what, what our passions are, I think we can kind of apply that same logic that, you know, you're, you're just going to suck at first and there's no way around it. <laughs> yeah. Just suck as much and as fast as possible. And then eventually you'll, you'll get better. I like the fact that you mention it as, as being a process, like, and, and kind of coming to grips in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, coming out the block that you're not going to be, uh, the greatest. I mean, that happens, but the, the frequency with which that happens is, is so, uh, rare that you should put that out of your mind. You should, really kind of go in there kind of like you said with the process of this is going to suck (laughs) and 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 grind it and just you know uh, and hone hone your craft and hone your edge and and what you're doing and and just work it and work it and work it and eventually like you just said you know the photos and the videos that you're taking today are exponentially better than you took you know a couple weeks ago 
Totally. It, it kind of reminds me of, um, I read like a story about um, Pixar, right? So like the film studio and they kind of like they're, they, you know, this triggered the, when you said process, it sort of like triggered that in my mind. But basically it was like, you know, when Pixar like comes up with a script, and I think they had like 14 like movies in a row that were like the number one box office grossing movie when, when it came out. So, um, it basically, uh, they, they put up a script and I think they have, it's like, they know it's going to be about a year and a half process, something like that, maybe two years or I'm not sure the exact details, but like, they know that like whatever the script is initially, then it's going to suck. But like, you have to start somewhere, right? So you have to get that initial thing out there to then be able to like work and iterate and change and, and figure out when, you know, like how to make it better. And I think that that's kind of what keeps us in our comfort zone and keeps us sort of doing the same old, same old a lot is the fact that like we don't get started. We don't start with the process. Like, you know, if I had chosen just to not shoot those like terabytes worth of like data of like photos and videos that like were unusable at first, then it, you know, and, and if I just get discouraged, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, it's just because like, I don't know, like the blame it on something, you know, like the disability, it's too hard to carry the camera. I use kind of a typical unadapted Canon camera. I've got a Panasonic camera, um, use different, different stuff, but basically it's like unadapted to both stuff. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't ever really kind of go in that mindset though of like, this is bad because of some external factor. I just, I just know it's bad only because I haven't done it enough. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I do it enough, I know it'll eventually get to the point where it's going to work. And sometimes I think that life shows up differently. It shows up better when we're learning things. It shows up, you know, you know, just, we become more creative and more, um, just more engaged with life in general if, if we are on that path of like growth and learning something it's just, i mean all the research is going to go and support the fact that like it's just generally a better idea to go and do and, and i think the thing that a lot of companies and you know business leaders right now are facing is this like world of massive change right that things are changing so fast and that you know i think it's it's easy like you know, I get to like later today, I've got a couple of calls for events that I have coming up. And, you know, generally one of the things that I want to go in and talk to some of the business leaders about one of the questions that I always ask are like, kind of get them tell me about like the differences between like your top 5% people and your sort of middle of the pack 50%. And, you know, I want to know like what makes the 5% top tier in inside of a company like what makes them higher performing, what makes them tick. And one of the like more common things that I hear is, is this idea of like just even they're a little bit paranoid <laughs> that they're not going, that they're going to go away. They're going to become irrelevant. And I kind of refer to it as like a healthy paranoia. I kind of feel the same. I think that massive, um, changes are coming to every industry. I mean, especially including this, the speaking industry and things of that nature. Right. So if I'm booked for X number of events right now in the future, and there's, you know, however many tens of thousands of professional speakers in the world, then that too would potentially, you know, that's numbers going to go and shrink when speakers can show up and give a speech in VR in five to 10 years where everybody's wearing a VR headset. And like, you don't really know if the speaker's there in person or not. And you could do that speech from, you know, like people could do that wherever they are. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever, like the live event thing is ever going to go away completely, but I do think it's going to shrink a lot. It's going to change. And so, and, in that and, by, regard, and by the way, there are speakers already doing that. Yeah. Don't, well, yeah. see, look, I'm already behind. I'm already behind <laughs> the curve. I'm just screwed. Yeah. No, it's like either you get on board with it or you engage, or you can go and limit the fact that like, there aren't going to be those like the same frequency of live events or whatever else. And so blah, 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 like woe is me. And then, you know, you just, you just go away. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's super ironic, but literally I, I, I've said in presentations before and I have to go and change this now, but I've said like, don't be Kodak. 
And then like two days ago, I met the CEO of Kodak, who was an awesome guy. <laughs> and he's only been the CEO for the last three years and has come in and he's like really like revitalized like a lot of the, the brand, but you know, and gets like, there's like that vintage like appeal to the brand. Mm-hmm. And, but he's using that disadvantage as an advantage, right? But it's, it's, it's also too, it's like, the, the the idea behind that is like if we rest on our laurels, you know, we sit back, then we're not going to exist. Only I think it's like maybe I think it's like forty eight percent of the companies that were in the Fortune five hundred in two thousand one even still exist today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things are changing so fast, and it's either we can go and make excuses about all the reasons why we can't change too, or we get stoked about that change. We use that change to become an unfair advantage and you know, we're able to actually like become better for it. Speaking of excuses, you have a book called no excuses. Oh dude. Thanks for the, thanks for the drop. <laughs> hey, you're, you're welcome for the softball setup. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, you, I, I say that word. I think I really need to change my filler words. Uh, but you know, when it comes to kind of having this healthy paranoia and, 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 and keeping your eye on the horizon as to what's going to come and being uh, adaptable um, and being able to change your environment instead of having your environment change you. I think it kind of comes back to, you know, to use the title of the book, not having excuses, not saying that, you know, hey, it was this outside force pushing in on me and I had to change to it instead of, you know, seeing that it's coming or at least having the idea that that might happen or something similar might occur and being able to just, um, you know, do a mental jujitsu just to, to get out of the way or, 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 or to take that situation and, and, and use it, uh, and use the leverage to, to your advantage. Man, I, I, I like that. I actually just filed the trademark for mental jujitsu when you said that. So in case anybody <laughs> tries to steal it, <laughs> darn, 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 darn. But yeah, I mean, you know, the whole resting on your laurels thing, I mean, it's, it's the, it's the same thing. And if we're going to talk about, you know, speakers giving it from, um, you know, the VR and I mean, it's kind of like at Coachella a couple years ago when they had the, the Tupac, um, Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. But you, you know, as great as that is to, to have somebody come on stage, whether it be a, a robot or, um, you know, a VR, you know, you don't know if Mark Zuckerberg's in the audience or not having that ability to be able to then connect with somebody like yourself and having that, you know, that offhand off the cuff conversation, that little sidebar five minutes, you know, over here really, it changes the entire dynamic. And I think, you know, having somebody like yourself, and I mentioned this too, uh, which is, you know, for most people in your situation and having your story, their story would stop. It would be, you know, I, I was born, you know, you know, no arms, no legs. This is my story. Or, you know, I I went and became, you know, this amazing wrestler, but that's my story. But the great thing about you is that your story is, is constantly evolving and constantly changing and and you're continuing to grow. It's mostly just because my nightmare would be to tell the same story for like 30 years in a row. (laughs) I feel like that would be, that would just be crazy to know. I mean, I kind of jest, but, and I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's, you know, I think that I want to have, you know, we we're both kind of mutual fans of, of, um, Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I've gotten to learn from Tim was the, um, like the idea of having like a diversified portfolio in your life. And, you know, if you, you know, so I just want to have, you know, a number of different things going on, right? Like I have things like in, my work, I have things in, you know, my hobbies and, and, um, you know, relationships and family and, and travel. And, um, you know, there's just, if there's a number of different things going on, maybe not everything is going great in one area, but yet it sort of is offset by some of those other things that, that are happening. I think that's a big, I mean, sort of side note to, to what we were talking about, but you know, the other side of it is like adaptability is, is frankly, it's kind of like, a frame of mind and a, and a choice in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that in the sense that like, you know, theoretically, and I, I've gotten to argue this point with a couple of people, but, um, you know, in the easy example is no matter how strong I am mentally, I'm probably never going to be able to beat Michael Jordan or Le- LeBron James in a one-on-one basketball game in their prime if they're re- actually trying. So there are 
kind of real limits that exist. And, you know, maybe I'm like the anti-motivational motivational speaker, but I kind of hate it when I hear, and I used to say this, but anything is possible. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I like the spirit of that, but it's like anything is possible. Okay, cool. Go bench press 10,000 pounds. Well, you know, it's, it's like, I think a better way to put it is to know your limits, but never stop trying to break them. And the extent to which you can tell the truth to yourself about the current limits that you're facing, I think is the extent to which you can actually do something about them. So it's, it's having a very real look at where the limits exist in physical time and space right now for you. And then examining what are some of these things I could go and do differently with that. Like if I had spent my entire life wishing, dreaming, praying, hoping that I would just wake up and have arms and legs, then it never would have happened. Right. And it's not only that, but it's like, it would have been a very disappointing life instead of, you know, thankfully, I mean, I didn't really make this choice, but just had parents that, you know, I was lucky enough that showed me that, you know, I could go and do these other things that they believed in me enough and coaches and teachers and, you know, other people that, that gave me those opportunities. And, um, it, you know, it's just sometimes, you know, it's like we blur the lines, I think, between the, the limits that actually exist versus where the excuses lie. And it's, it's, you know, it's not really a black or white thing. There's some gray area. There's some subjectivity. It's like nature versus nurture. It's, it's an, you know, it's not an either or it's, and both are existing simultaneously. So it's like, where does that line exist? And I think the only way to determine where that line actually exists is to continually try to push the bounds and examine like in real world experience, like where those limits are. Uh-huh. And while the, the limits may be, um, you know, let's say physical or technological in nature. I mean, the, the will, and thank you for setting this up for another softball, uh, quip and remark to, to, <laughs> to show your awesomeness, but you were, uh, the star of a Nike commercial entitled unlimited. Will. talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this new NPR way of interviewing. I love it. Um, I, you know, it was, it was an awesome opportunity. It was really cool to get to go and work with, um, with, uh, Nike, Wyden Kennedy, also their ad agency. And then, um, the, um, uh, pretty bird was the production company that shot it. And, um, the really cool thing I thought was, and really all, you know, my friend Joey and Kevin and I, I mean, we just had to show up and, and, and shoot it. And they did most of the hard, hard work in the actual production of it. And, um, but it was really cool to see that it won like a ad week award for like the most remembered commercial of the Olympics, which was really neat. Um, strangely as a side note, when I, the commercial first played, it was awesome. I mean, it, you know, it was playing during prime time in the Olympics and, uh, we were climbing on, you know, the side of a mountain in mammoth. Um, I think, you know, the narrator was like, you know, here's Kyle Maynard working hard, pushing his limits, blah, blah, blah. And then they were like, wait, dude, you don't have arms and legs. And I was like, oh, really? I must have left him at home. That's kind of the punchline. And then that's pretty much it. And then it just zooms out to like the, you know, show the mountain that we're on. And, um, but yeah, so we, we did that commercial plays. I was coming back from a speaking event in uh, Salt Lake City, landed in San Diego and turned on my phone immediately got blasted with about 250 text messages from like friends that I hadn't talked to since high school graduation. And, um, it was, uh, it was pretty fun to see that the, the response from that, but the, I think the the looks of all the other passengers that were around me on the plane, when I turned my phone off the airplane mode, was probably the best part of like, what the heck is your phone doing right now? But the, uh, I'm yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, a fun, it was a, it was kind of a fun thing to go and do of like, you know, it was, it was fun. They actually decided to go and do it on a mountain. They were going to do it in a studio in LA, which I'm sure would have been interesting too. But, um, you know, the fact that we actually got to go and do a climb for it was, was pretty neat. And you are a climber. I mean, we, we've talked about a lot of other fun stuff. Um, but this has been one of your passions and I know that you're, you're going also into photography and videography, but you, you've climbed, um, a few mountains if I remember correctly. And I think the, the big one as of late was, uh, what Mount, uh, Aconcagua. That's right. Hey, you did pretty good with that pronunciation. I try, I try. Man. Kudos props, man. That, um, is not an easy one. It took me a couple months to, <laughs> to get right. Um, listening is key. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, 
yeah, effectively, Kilimanjaro was like the first really big climb that we did. I had only had maybe 12 hikes in my entire life before we did that one, just because it would take so long to duct tape the gear onto me and then got the final carbon fiber gear set about two weeks before we left. And the difference between Aconcagua and Kilimanjaro are it's um, Aconcagua. Well, the main difference is nobody's ever heard of Aconcagua, even though it's the highest peak in the world outside of the Himalaya. So it's um, almost 7,000 meters tall, which is 22,800 feet. About Kilimanjaro is like 19,300. And um, it was breathtakingly beautiful in the Andes chain in South America. And um, the, the primary, primary physical difference, though, is that Kilimanjaro is like a 25 or 30-mile trail. And Aconcagua is like only maybe a four, three or four, maybe five-mile trail um, once you're at the base camp of the mountain. But then from that point, it's just straight up. And it was dealing a lot with like the loose rock, the scree, and you slide I felt like I was on an inverted, like a uh, treadmill, just literally moving down the mountain faster than I was climbing up it at times. And, um, you know, I was, I remember probably the hardest, roughest day in the mountain other, other than our summit day. Um, but psychologically the, the, the hardest day I think was, um, our fourth day in and had to climb through these things called penitentes, which to give people like a little picture is, you just have to you have to Google these things, penitentes, uh, in Argentina on Aconcagua, um, but they're just like these ice spikes and towers. Some of them are maybe like three or four feet. Some of them are upwards of like eight or nine, ten feet, and try to climb over the small ones and around the big ones. I did like a thousand pull-ups that day, and just got to the top of this ice field after going about a thousand vertical feet, and had a watermelon-sized boulder shoot past my head, going sixty miles an hour. That went by, it was like a foot and a half away. And, you know, it got me questioning of like, why the heck am I doing this? Like, what am I trying to prove? And I was really kind of mad at myself because, um, you know, it was like, you, like you kind of forgot, like, I mean, Kilimanjaro was amazing. It was beautiful. It was an unbelievable experience, but there were elements of it that were really, that's, that sucked, that were really hard. And I kind of promised myself I wasn't going to go back and do another one. And then I was like, couple years later on Aconcagua and I'm like, dude, you did it to yourself again. What are you thinking? And, uh, um, you know, I was like in my guide, I was only a couple hundred um, meters from camp that day. And I had to just like, it was a flat, it was a mountain at that point, just kind of flattened out. And I had to lay in the dirt and just turn my head and cried. My guide came and sat next to me and um, laid next to me for a while. But, you know, I didn't want him to see the tears streaming down my face. And, you know, it was at that moment, though, that it was a, it was a pretty big gut check to, to continue to move forward because that was the last day that I could have paid extra to opt to take a helicopter out. But I was thinking, you know, maybe I should because it, um, you know, was like maybe I shouldn't be here. But decided not to and, you know, really – Aconcagua for me was a was a bigger awakener and I had just lost my grandmother who was everything to me um, growing up and um, had mentioned that sugar jar you know and she was the one that taught me to reach out and shake people's hands and you know just tell people she said when people hear your voice they see your face they shake your hand the disability will fade away she was the most amazing grandma ever and um, when she when she passed it really set me on this sort of path and a search of like what is my life about but a big realization was like, look, do this, you know, you can tough it out and, um, you know, not dead, can't quit. One of the mantras that my friend Richard Makowitz would always say, and, um, you know, it was like, I would just keep that in my head. Just not dead, can't quit, not dead, can't quit. And then, you know, by being there, it allows me now to go and continue to bring grandma Betty to so many other kids and adults around the world. And, you know, even the Nike commercial that, um, you know, was a, was a consequence of, of getting to have that experience. So it's, you know, not everybody wants to be a mountaineer, but I have a firm belief that everybody has a mountain or mountains in their life that they've wanted to take on that maybe they put on the back burner. And 
my hope is that maybe some people that are listening to this now examine that and actually do something about it. You know, they, they book the ticket, they, you know, start the business, they, um, you know, buy the camera, they, they start shooting and using it, um, whatever it is that, that it is for them. I, I just, I hope that, um, I hope that they do. Cause I think that, you know, once you sort of start on that journey, you, you know, cross whatever threshold you have to go and go on your path and, and like then like that's like half the battle alone it's just just committing to that first step and then it's you know the subsequent steps you commit to after that i think and then all of a sudden you're there mm-hmm. and i think that is a beautiful place for us to wrap so thank you kyle uh if y'all are interested in booking kyle maynard for your event you can do so by contacting gda speakers at 214-420-1999 or by visiting gdaspeakers.com if you want to uh Read today's transcript, buy Kyle's book, watch uh, an awesome YouTube video from Nike. You can do so by going to gdapodcast.com. Uh, You're hired. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like the, the freelance um, social media guy for you. Joey's done for. <laughs> no, I like Joey. Joey's great. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't be able to function without Joey. I'm like, would not fit in normal world. Joey, I say, is like the human who helps me is like the 8,000 year old vampire, like function in normal society. So, <laughs> and by the way, I wanted Joey on this, but uh, I guess he, he, when I was talking to him prior to this, he, he, he had some, he's guess he was just going to be busy today. So yeah, I get something come up, but yeah. part three, that part, could be part three. Me. Yes. We're, we're not even going to talk about part one anymore. It's going to be part three. Right. Okay. Kyle. Awesome. Well, Hey dude, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate um, talking to you today. Thanks man. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of GDA Podcast, powered by GDA Speakers. If you're interested in booking today's guest, visit GDA Speakers at gdaspeakers.com or call 214-420-1999. Visit gdapodcast.com and subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date and be informed of new episodes, blog posts, and more. Be sure to follow GDA Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GDA Podcast, as well as Facebook at facebook.com slash GDA Podcast. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from GDA Podcast and GDA Speakers.